Prepare to be amazed as you hear Margaret Jorgensen tell how she had ancestors both in Presidio Tucson and in the Mormon Battalion. In part one, you'll hear how her cousins felt when they heard about the ragtag army that was headed their way. Today, we're visiting with Margaret Jorgensen of Troy, Michigan. She met us before we did the hike, joined us for a River of Time event with her grandchildren, helped us publicize the trek, used her relationship with the Tucson Historical Society to help set up two events along the trail at that location, and joined us in Tucson with her husband, Cheryl, to share this story that you'll hear today. As you'll learn, our meeting was somewhat of a miracle, which led her to be able to share the story that you'll hear during this podcast. Margaret has a unique family history that allows her to tell both sides of the story about the Mormon Battalion experience at Presidio Tucson in 1846. It's an incredible tale and even more incredible that Margaret is here to tell it. So Margaret, what a treat it is to have you visit with us today. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you. I'm so delighted to be here. I so admire the two of you, the effort that you put into this whole trek and your ability to even do it <laughs> or desire to do it. And what a wonderful blessing it's been to all of us so that we get to know our ancestors better and the people on the Mormon Battalion. Thank you. It's our treat, actually. We're the ones that got most of the benefit, I think, from the experience. It's just been wonderful to be able to reconnect with all of you who helped us along the way and joined us. So this has been a real treat for us. Before we get into your incredible story, let's just reminisce briefly about how we met and how you first of all learned about Kevin Henson and his interest in the Mormon Battalion. Well, it was back in what, 2005, I think, um, I first met you. I, I, was, I picked up a brochure in Bloomfield Hills, Michigan State Center that said that you were coming to make a presentation. And I took that home with me and I thought, I remember I have a, someone in the Mormon Battalion that was an ancestor this would be interesting to go visit and, and see this. And so um, I had it with me at the office and I thought, well, maybe I should go to this. And so I was going to leave and go to the stake center on my way home from work. And before I left, I had this, a voice in my heart that said, stop and print off the life histories of Ebenezer Brown and his wife, Phoebe Palmer Brown someone tonight will need that. And I thought, well, okay, whatever, I'll just do that. So I printed the thing off and I thought, well, I wonder who I'm supposed to give this to. So I went to the presentation. I was sitting way, way up in the front, thoroughly enjoyed it. Kevin had these wonderful slides and presentation and someone else came and talked about the saints from Mississippi, things I had never heard about the battalion. And I was just thrilled about it. And I was all excited and I, and the thing was over and the chapel started to empty out because I was in the front. I was one of the last people to be able to leave the building. And I kept looking around thinking, well, who am I supposed to give this to? And just about everybody was gone, but I saw you in the back of the building with the camera and all the equipment that to help Kevin with his presentation. And so I, you know, leaned over to you and told you what a great presentation it was and thanked you for 
you know, and your husband and all your efforts. And you asked me, well, what, what, what caused you to want to come tonight to this presentation? And so I told you that I had uh, my third great grandfather, father, Ebenezer Brown, and his wife, Phoebe, made the trek. And you lit up, your face just went into this huge smile, and you were all excited. And, and you start, and you told me how you and Kevin, when you were doing reenactments, used my ancestors, Ebenezer and Phoebe, as the people that you portrayed when you were doing the reenactments. And we were both all excited about this. And I pulled out that paper that had all of the information on my family history. And I said, I have something for you. <laughs> and that's how we met. That was amazing. Um, and we still have that folder today with all that information. I just saw it a couple of weeks ago. <laughs> and then from there, it just snowballed. You started talking about doing the trek. And I thought you were crazy, but I thought it was a noble effort. And so I thought, okay, what can I do to help? And so I ended up helping you put together a, a flyer, a brochure to announce what your activities were and where you were going to be. And I enlisted the help of my sister, Carol. Between the two of us, we sent brochures to all of the bishops in all the towns within a hundred mile radius of your entire trek so that they would know you were coming and you would have their support. And that was a beautiful brochure. I will just let everybody know when I get around to putting things on the video, you'll be able to see the brochure. There was no way we could have accomplished that on our own. And so Margaret and Carol, they just took a huge load off of our shoulders just because we didn't have time to publicize. We were busy trying to get ready for the trek. Well, that was way plenty that you were doing. I think you came to a River of Time reenactment with us one year, didn't you? I did, but I was looking and I think that was in 2009. So it was after you had come back from the trek. Oh, wow. Yeah, I think it was after the trek. And that was wonderful because my daughter and her husband and four children were living near us at the time. So we all put on our pioneer costumes and and went up for the day. And you had this wonderful encampment there in Bay City, Michigan, and you were representing the Mexican-American war period. And you had all the tents and the girls had such fun pretending to wash dishes and, and wash with the washboard, their clothes. And there were all kinds of games for the kids to play. It, it was just a wonderful experience. We had such a good bonding time over that. Now, I, I want to interject a little bit of hit our history here, just a little bit uh, with you. Now, we had known that you were, of course, related to Ebenezer for, uh, well, 2005, 6, 7, and the first half of 2008. So here it is, June of 2008. We're scheduled to leave the next month in July to start our hike. And all of a sudden, you bring up the story, send to us uh, a number of pages of your family history detailing that you've got all these ancestors on the Mexican side of the story. And you've been keeping that from us. <laughs> and we, I was just gobsmacked as, oh my gosh, you know, here we've got both sides of the story in one family. And uh, that was just delightful. Could, could I just, uh, before we end, let you know how the two sides of my family came together? Oh, please. Yes, for sure. 
Well, of course, we had my mother's side of the family who came through Tucson and the uh, Pima Native Americans and the Spaniards who came over in 1700s. So that whole line was there in Tucson. And then when my mother married my father, he came through Ebenezer and Ann Weaver's line. When, when the two of them got married, that's when the two lines uh, connected in our family. That's how, how that part of the story goes. And, and when did the family realize you had both, both parts of the cord? I'm guessing it's when my brother Cliff did all of this research and, and put it all together. I don't know exactly when he put it together. I'd be interested in hearing from him how, how he came to that uh, realization. <laughs> what were his feelings when he made that realization? Kevin, do you have any memories of what the battalion wrote about when they came into Tucson? We have quite a few quotes. You know, the guys were concerned that uh, the Mexicans were going to defend the uh, Presidio and not allow the battalion to pass by. The commander had proposed that the battalion travel off to the north about 10 miles and not come to the Presidio. And Cook responded by letter that, uh, no, we, we really need supplies, so we're coming in. And uh, he asked for the commander of the Mexican forces to surrender, but of course that was denied. So anyway, the battalion formed up about four days before they got there. They were really concerned they were going to have to fight their way through. So the Cook actually had them practice uh, loading and firing their muskets. Uh, there's a there's a hill somewhere out there near St. David where where uh, they fired into the bank. So morning that they're approaching the Presidio, they form up a couple miles outside of town and, and actually fix bayonets and, and load up ready to, to do battle if they had to. Oh. So your ancestors, they might have looked like a ragtag group, but I'm sure they looked pretty intimidating with with their bayonet. One of the things I like to show people is my musket, which is uh, finished in what was called uh, uh, the bright. In other words, the steel was was silvered. It wasn't, well, not that they applied silver to it, but it, you know, it's bright polished steel. It's not, it's not a dark uh, metal. Mm -hmm. And then you fix the bayonet on top of that and you put it on your shoulder uh, as you would carry it into battle. And that sucker, that bayonet, the tip of the bayonet, somewhere close to 11 feet in the air. Oh, good heaven. Yeah, and you get about 300 people, uh, 350 people. Of course, you know, 335, that's just the battalion. They still had the five women, and they had the officers, servants. They had the guides and the, and the scouts. They had the, the food and the wagons coming up and all the horse, extra horses and mules they had. So there's close to, what, uh, 400 plus people, uh, plus all the animals. So it, it made a pretty good sized cloud of dust as, as it's coming towards you. And then you have, you know, almost 350 people with fixed bayonets uh, all glittering in the sunlight. That just has to be a terribly <laughs> intimidating scene as you see that coming towards you. <laughs> I'm sure that it was. Plus, plus it, hadn't the battalion just encountered a whole bunch of wild bulls? And so they were probably a little bit shaken from that experience. Yeah, yeah, they had uh, just, just about a week before they had had the Battle of the Bulls out on the San Pedro. <laughs>
here's a question for you, Margaret. Why did you even want to volunteer to help with the, the trek? Oh, I think after hearing that first presentation, and I knew about my ancestors, uh, Ebenezer and Phoebe, and so I was interested in that. But then I remembered my Tucson ancestors on my mother's side of the family and remembered how they felt when the Mormon battalion came through Tucson to the Presidio there, because I had all of my Spanish and Pima Native American Indian family there in the garrison in Tucson at the Presidio. They were the soldiers and the merchants and the families who were living around there. And I remember hearing the family stories of what it was like for them when they heard about this Mormon battalion of soldiers coming and they didn't know what was going to happen. They heard that these battalion was coming and they knew that Mexico was at war with the United States. And there was this big group of soldiers coming, you know, over through Tucson and they were, they were worried. They sent some men out to kind of check the situation out. And sure enough, there was how many hundreds of men were there, Kevin? I don't remember how many were in the battalion at that point. Well, at that point, about 335. So that was a good enough size group that it would be pretty intimidating. I remember them being worried because they didn't know that the Mormon battalion looked so ragtag because they were sending a lot of their money. They were sending it to their families who were trying to have enough money to provision themselves for the uh, trip across the plains. They were all these young men. They were kind of ragtag and didn't look real disciplined. My Mexican ancestors were, were worried looking at them. They were sure that the men were going to come and rape the women and burn down their home, the Presidio there in Tucson. So they went back and told Major Commodoran, you know, that's what was going to happen. Lieutenant Colonel Cook told the, the people at the garrison there that you needed to give up your, your arms um, and that they were going to be coming through. He told them they were going to be peaceful and they just wanted to buy provisions. But after my cousins had taken a look at the, <laughs> at the army, they weren't so sure that they were going to be, you know, reputable and be in control. First, the commander, uh, in, in talking back with Mexico City and up and back, they realized that uh, the Presidio there in Tucson was the northernmost point of population and, and garrison for the Mexicans. It was just kind of held together there more as a protective area for the, the Pima and Papago Indians that were living in the area to live and to farm around there because the Apaches were constantly invading. And so they decided that it wasn't worth it to stay and defend the fort. And so during the night, he took the two cannons and, and a whole lot of the provisions and, and removed the military from the fort. And then that left all of, I'm calling them my cousins, you know, there to defend themselves. So they uh, took their, their goats and pigs and started herding them and all the, the provisions that they could get over to the San Javier mission, which was about, I think about 10 miles or so away to the Southwest, hoping that they could protect their families there for a while. And then that just left really hardly anybody left at the fort. Well, I had two two cousins who stayed there who were businessmen, they, they were, you know, the merchants there. They were in their 
20s and 30s, and they had to do something to protect their families. They were afraid they were going to, you know, the Mormon battalion would burn down the fort, and then they would have no place for their families to live. And you know? that, was, that was a really precarious place that they were living. And that Presidio was really everything they had to protect them, right? Absolutely. That was their home. Everything they had was there. They they took off. It was very brave of those two ancestors, Francisco Bojorquez and Theodoro Ramirez, were the two businessmen that, that stayed behind. When the, the military came in, they they greeted them. They said they didn't welcome them. They greeted them. And they said that they stayed to negotiate for some the supplies that the Americans wanted to purchase, and they hoped they wouldn't steal, but they didn't know for sure. But then once they, once the, the battalion came in, they found out that, oh, these are really nice people. They're, you know, they're not trying to harm us or hurt us. Some of them are even willing to cut the buttons off of their shirts to use for like coin to, to buy, you know, things with, and they um, exchanged corn and wheat and flour and beans and you know whatever and of course a lot of that was over in at San Javier Mission when my family realized that oh they're going to they're they're nice people they're going to trade with us they're not going to burn us down then they sent over to the mission and brought back some supplies to give to the battalion and that was also a precarious thing because now the battalion knew where all the extra supplies were and they could have just gone over there and taken it all. Luckily, they were wise enough to realize that the men who were there at the mission were going to defend their families to their, their lives. And it was better to go ahead and deal with the merchants there in the fort and get the supplies they needed. And then they moved on. And I'm so grateful that our families could come back and be safe and have their home still there because the good people on both sides honored, you know, their their word and and it turned out to be an okay thing. Well, I'm just glad it all turned out so well. And you know, the good thing about it too is that the, the battalion built that whole trail and made a trail all the way across over over to uh, California, and it increase the overland stage. The overland stage was then able to bring a lot more people through that way. And Tucson then was able to be built up a lot because I had one of my uh, grandfathers on my mother's side of the family who was one of the first white men to settle permanently there in Tucson, uh, Sam Hughes. And he married Atanasia Santa Cruz, who was born just a couple of years after the battalion went through. She was raised by Guadalupe Santa Cruz, who was there during the battalion's march through. A lot of the family stories have come through Guadalupe Santa Cruz as well. <laughs> it would really be nice if we had more of the official documents from Mexico. Mm. Well, Margaret, I have a little exciting news for you. Oh, yes? What? If you can get your hands on the February 2021 copy of Desert Tracks, that's published by the Southern Trails chapter of the Oregon California Trail Association. I have in my hand the uh, copy, and so 
on page nine is introduction to Colonel Cook and Colonel Comaduran at Presidio Tucson. And then the next article is standoff at Tucson, the American point of view by Miller. And on page 16 is the dispute at Tucson, the Mexican point of view by Hewitt. So let me just... We have the first sketch I've ever seen of Jean-Baptiste Charbonneau by his friend and employer, Duke Frederick Wilhelm of Wittenberg. And here we have Henry P. Hewitt, who was able to get down into, into Mexico. And through contacts and persistence, he was able to get the Mexican official reports and letters and experiences of the people who uh, met the battalion. And that's pages 16 through 20 with references. How fascinating. I can hardly wait to get it. I think you will just be overjoyed. It is. I'm happy now and I haven't even seen it yet. What stands out to you about it, Kevin? Well, it, you know, the Mexican uh, reports confirm what Cook reported in his official report that uh, there was this back and forth going back and forth between uh, uh, Cook and and the uh, uh, Comadurán who is there, that they did take uh, Stephen C. Foster, the interpreter, hostage, hostage, and that Cook, in, in response, took some people hostage. <laughs> and the, so there's this back and forth for two or three days as the battalion continues to approach uh, uh, the Presidio. And uh, Saturnio Limon, he's one of the functionaries further south. Uh, he said it was kind of like a surrender, but he wasn't there. So it's, it's kind of fun that you get to read this. Oh, absolutely. My family will thoroughly enjoy it, especially my brother Cliff, who has done so much of the research for us. Oh, yeah, Alfred Limon appointed a commissioner to meet Cook. So yeah, Limon is uh, one of the key people there, I guess. I'm, I'm, I still haven't really digested this and read it very much. In Chihuahua, Governor Tree. Trias, T-R-I-A-S, received reports about American military movements out of Santa Fe. So, yeah, they had spies uh, along the route that knew what was going on. So about December 12, uh, the scouts informed Cook that Tucson had was only about 50 or 60 miles away and that they had already encountered some Mexican soldiers and those soldiers, those Mexican soldiers, indicated the Presidio Tucson was manned by about 200 men. Anyway, so uh, so Foster uh, was sent forward to see what the situation was and try to substantiate the report. The Mexican scouts returned to Tucson on the 13th, reported to Antonio Comaduran, uh, who was the Presidio commander. They had encountered Cook's scouting party at the uh, Cienega de, de los Pimas. Um, and then he sent a sergeant with eight men to surprise the Americans and before they left the Cienega. Came back with uh, Foster as the prisoner. 14th, Cook left the San Pedro. They found the Mexican soldiers sent by the captain. So that's kind of interesting anyway. Yes, I look forward to it. Thank you so much for for finding that. Yeah, well, I, I didn't find it. It was handed to me. <laughs> you'll want to make sure you listen to part two so that you'll know both sides of the story. Mm-hmm.